Wednesday Bible study we'll be carrying on through the holidays at the moment but we're looking at the book of Daniel and they're going what's the significance of that if you're a visitor <clears throat> sometime in the past there was a, a drought here and the people got together to pray and this didn't happen at the time but it's just a reminder that God is in control of things because this was just in a last rain this dry barren land where people gathered to pray the Lord answers prayers amen <laughs> and Christ is risen amen he's risen indeed <laughs> so it's always a wonderful time Easter shuffling of the decks some of you are here others of us there are there it's just the Lord's gathering today the people alongside you are who God brought to be with you connect with today it's wonderful to have you here before we look at uh, some wonderful stuff from the Bible let's ask the Lord's help gracious Lord as we look into your word we pray that uh, exactly what uh, we thought about earlier that as we look in that our eyes will be opened our understanding will move to another level that we will see what we've not seen before and that uh, the wonderful glory of God will be re released through our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the person of God, the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to start off with uh, a techie thing or a nerdy thing. If I was to say SEP, Derek will know what I'm talking about. Does anybody else know what? SEP is. What is it, Derek? Somebody else's problem. First encountered in a book, uh, which became a radio play, which is, it became a movie, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, SEP, somebody else's problem, is that process that happens in the human brain which enables a spaceship to land at Lourdes during a cricket test match and nobody notices you see, the fact is that a spaceship landing is so incomprehensible, our brains can't comprehend it, and so SEP kicks in. Oh, somebody else's problem. And we don't notice it. We delegate it. Another way of looking at this is we see what we expect to see. We see what we expect to see. Anything which doesn't fit into our understanding, our worldview is dismissed or denied that we don't understand it, we don't see it. For example, ask a man to go to the fridge and get the aioli sauce. And he usually will open the door and say, there's none there. Because he didn't put it away. And he's not sure what the container looks like anyway. So therefore it's impossible to see because he has no picture in his head of what it looks like. It's a SCP, somebody else's problem. And sometimes the contrast between what you expected to see and what you actually see is hilarious. I first encountered this phenomenon. I was a teenager playing in Dad's band. It was the end of year footy wind-up. The request was, play some ballet music, guys. All right. So we played some ballet music. And out from the change room, swanned onto the dance floor, there's burly footy players dressed in pink ballet tutus. 
and the people fell about hysterically at the contrast between this verse and the ballet stuff. So it can be hilarious. And certainly there's a lot going on in our heads when we're confronted with something very different from what we expect. And that's Resurrection Sunday in a lot of ways. Something has unexpected happened in our story, you know, the, the Emmaus story. It was totally unexpected. Uh, somebody that they'd seen put to death, buried, body taken away, put in a tomb as an armed guard. Call it SCP, call it you see what you expect to see, call it selective blindness, call it whatever you like. The fact is that seeing the incomprehensible for these two guys on the way to Emmaus was very hard for them to understand. And it wasn't until the bread was broken that they uh, were able to put together what they were seeing with what they had seen before. Now we have got these scriptures there for that same section. You might be able to skip through it, seeing I read it so very nicely. My point is that these two guys on the road to Emmaus were eyewitnesses. They're eyewitnesses because we're going to look at a lot of eyewitness stories. You might have difficulty relating to this story because you weren't actually there 2,000 years ago in that little period of time between Jesus dying, coming back to life before he was taken to heaven. And so it's very important that we have people from that time who were there, who saw what went on. And when it comes to believing the incomprehensible, we can rule out, we, we can't rule out the importance of having eyewitnesses. And that the central task we have to this morning is when we think about the gospel story, we think about Resurrection Sunday, is, is it true? How much of it is true? And if it's true, what does that mean for us today? What do we have to do about it? And, you know, sadly, the truth that Jesus came back to life on the third day is increasingly dismissed, it's diminished, it's ridiculed and denied in our everyday... In, 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 our day and age and people just say oh well it's just a story now task today is not to break down every one of those objections but just to refer to the eyewitness testimony you have you know in a court of law the most common way to prove that you did something is to find somebody who saw you do it and you get if you get a group of people who come in and they all saw what you did, then you consider that's what happened. You consider that's truth. So the eyewitnesses were on the way to Emmaus. What about when they came back? Luke chapter 24. Where have we got? Where are we up to here? Luke 24, verse 36. The Emmaus people are coming back. And while they're still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. 
And he said, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands, look at my feet, it's myself. Touch me and see. I think that's a, that's a very powerful testimony for me. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he said that, he showed them his hands, showed them his feet, and well, they still didn't believe. Because of joy and amazement, he asked them, well, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. I mean, ghosts don't eat. He was real. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Told them this is what's written. And this is the same message for us today. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high so there's those two guys let's look at some other eyewitnesses John chapter 21 afterwards Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea of Galilee and it happened, happened this way there's Simon Peter Thomas also known as Didymus there's Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee there's the sons of Zebedee there and there's two other disciples there and I'm going out to fish Simon Peter told them and they said oh why not we'll go with you and they went out, they got into the boat and fished all night and caught as much as I usually catch. <laughs> Nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. And he said, hey, friends, haven't you got any fish? No, they answered. Well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of a large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord! He wrapped his outer garment around him, because he'd taken it off to work, and jumped in the water and left his mates there to do the hard work. But anyway, he's off. The other disciples followed in the boat. They towed the net full of fish, but they were not far from shore, only about 100 yards out there, 100 metres, I suppose. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there, fish on it and some bread. So remember, as we're looking at these details, these are eyewitnesses of Jesus. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed into the boat, dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish. But even with so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have brekkie. And none of the disciples said, dared to ask, who are you? they knew it was the Lord Jesus came, he took the bread, he gave it to them did the same with the fish and this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead do you want some more added value? well how much detail a witness remembers about a scene is usually an indication that they were there and that they're telling the truth. So let's look at a few more details in the same meeting as above. Uh, John chapter 21, verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Oh, yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. And when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. And Jesus said that to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned, he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. And that's the same one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, well, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You? follow me and because of this the rumor spread among the believers that his disciple wouldn't die but Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't die he only said if I want him to remain alive until I return what's that to you this is the disciple who testifies to the things who wrote them down we know that his testimony is true well what if you go back to eyewitnesses a little bit closer to the actual event in Matthew 28. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance like lightning. His clothes as white as snow. The guards, they were so afraid of him that they shook and they became like dead men. These are burly Roman soldiers. And the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples. He's risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you to Galilee and there you will see him. Now, I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Well, they're all positive eyewitness reports what about a hostile witness someone who didn't like what happened but had to admit that it was true anyway and what if they these hostile witnesses knowing the truth realize this is a threat and what if they realize that they need to come up with a plan to discredit that truth and what if they plan a cover-up wouldn't you like to know about that well, let the record show in Matthew 28. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and they reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. 
telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And that story has been very widely circulated amongst the Jews to this day. So there, it's important to look at real eyewitness accounts. Do we believe them? And if we do, what are the implications? You know that the story we've just seen there is unique amongst the religions of the world. No other religious figure has done this. No other religious figure has allowed himself to be gruesomely executed and then come back to life. No other religious figure has laid down his power taken undeserved pummeling for the benefit of other people. I've used a song at Christmas carols events called How Many Kings? And the lyrics of that one say, How many kings have stepped down from their throne? How many kings have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become least for me? How many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that's torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? So friends, the implications which arise from Jesus coming back to life are different from every other philosophy and religion in the world and the most important difference is that he has done all the heavy lifting for us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 puts it this way For it is by grace you've been saved through faith and it's not of yourself it's the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. You know if there's a central core to understanding how people operate, I believe it's this issue of power. You know the three core temptations we face? Money, sex and power. The most primal one, the central one, is power. Adam and Eve were seduced by the temptation to have more power than they already had. They were going to they were seduced because they were offered the power of the knowledge of good and evil. The power of extra knowledge. We need power. We need to have enough power to earn a living, to have satisfying relationships, to dominate the opposition. But the need to remain in power, the need to demonstrate our competence and our strengths is fuel for the sin of pride. Proud people, they'll go to the grave without ever admitting their weaknesses and failures because they would, by doing so, admit that they don't have the power that they so desperately put about that they do have. People will hold a public persona, a public image, and they'll never let you see what they're really like behind closed doors because they want to be seen to have power. People want to be known as competent. They want to be known as clever. They want to be known as skillful and talented and Outstanding. They want to be known as wise and insightful and discerning because those are signs that they are powerful. People want to be strong and independent because that means they have all the power they need in themselves. They have the power to manage their enterprises, to be successful, to prosper, 
They don't need advice, they don't need instruction and they definitely don't need correction from the likes of you because they have enough in themselves. And the digital world has introduced another deeper level of a quest for power because cameras, photography, digital manipulation of images can have taken the capacity for self-promotion, the capacity to make yourself look amazing on a screen to an unprecedented level. Some of the philosophies that we encounter in the world, and don't think it's just in other parts of the world, something like Marxism is based on the struggle to obtain and maintain power. The Marxist philosophy at its heart interprets life as a struggle between those nasty guys who got all the power and us nice common guys who need to get it off them. And the way we do that is we band together in triumphs and we fight for every, with everything we have for our own brand of truth. And how many arenas do you see just that process going on? People shouting their slogans, breaking cars, stomping their feet in tantrums, breaking in neighbourhoods up, protesting because something matters. How many people are making up fake news? How many re-express information from their viewpoint? How many invent emotive phrases and slogans to make you feel so that you don't logically think about the absurdity of what they're saying. These are all power battles. How many arenas do you see people, not anymore, listening to one another? Because they're too busy putting up artificial barriers between one another, they're too busy blaming one another, they're too busy playing the victim, they're just finding it impossible to accept anyone else who has a different viewpoint. Tell me if you don't think that matches this description which Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.1. And mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. You have a week of sermons on that, couldn't you? Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. That sounds like something we see on our screens day by day. And what we say today is that there is only one solution. There's only one worldview which deals with the issue of power properly. There's only one person who handled the lust for power properly and it was Jesus. Was he a lover of self, of money? Was he boastful or proud or abusive? No. What was his example for us to look at in Philippians 2? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, that's a big guy, he's God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue 
acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, one of the key implications of Jesus coming back to life is that he is the powerful one, not us. And that's an antidote to the struggle for power we all have to come to terms with. He has done the heavy lifting for our salvation. He has done everything necessary for us to spend eternity with him. And it wasn't us that did that. We don't need to struggle and strive to get all the power and the competence and the strength and the ability that we can. We don't have to struggle to have it always all together because patently we are unable to do so. We don't have to proudly have it all together because we can't do that perfectly. What we do need to do is link up with the one who can. Jesus. Jesus as a humble person shows that the antidote to pride is to take the very nature of a servant. To be obedient. Even unto death was his task at the time. To be obedient. To try not to grasp onto how important you think you are or your status because he had the status equal to God and he didn't hang on to that he laid it down so how are we going this morning with our temptations to have power do you find it hard to admit when you are wrong do you struggle to say the S word that's sorry would <laughs> do you refrain from asking questions when you don't understand things because I don't want to appear stupid do you have to know the answer before you'll ask a question do you have to be in charge all the time and so that means you avoid going to situations where you don't feel you're competent do you stay away from people who make you feel uncomfortable are you worried about other people's opinions of you what if they don't like me do you avoid sharing what really is going on for you when people sincerely ask how you're going? Do you only share surface information? Are you unwilling to talk about what's going on? Do you always have to be making a joke, always be the life of the party, being the big gesture, making the big gesture? All these signs of just avoiding being open and vulnerable and being real because you are desperately afraid that your pride will get damaged you know there's a rumor out there that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites it might have been put about by Christians who are trying to be good guys and failed miserably or it may just be that proud people don't like to think that they're sinners in actual fact you know Christians have to lay down their pride in order to become believers because they have to admit that God is the powerful one, not them. They have to surrender their own need to be powerful and realise, actually, I will always be just a work in progress. There will always be things I don't yet know. There will always be skills I haven't yet mastered. There will always be strengths that I'm working on. There will always be, in some respects, a novice, in some respects, competent. We'll know a fair bit, we'll never know everything. And friends, that's okay. That is enough. 
because God's the powerful one. He's the one we link up with. And if you want God to minister through your life, you must never try to take ownership of his power working through you. You don't need to carry his power around with you in your pocket. You don't need to know how he will use you. You don't have to feel strong before you need to be strong. You don't need the power because he's the power. You just need to be open to allow him to minister through you. We just need to be humble people who have entrusted our future to the one who, as we seal from your eyewitnesses' counts, rose from the dead. Because whoever believes in him shall have what? Everlasting life. Eyewitness accounts today have provided us with vital information. Do we need to update our concept of Jesus? In this modern technical technological world does this sound a bit far-fetched it's not this modern technological world is far-fetched do you need to reformat adapt and incorporate these testimonies into your brain do you need to trust in Jesus let's pray Lord with all the information that we had and consider today the basic issue is will we trust it we know it's true but will we trust it will we believe that you rose from the dead that if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins that if we'll turn away from living life to service our pride and our own self, sense of how good and mighty we are, and we'll trust in Jesus for salvation, that we have a wonderful eternity ahead of us, that we have a wonderful new life. We'll be born again when we say, Yes, Jesus, please come in. Be my Lord. Be my Saviour. And so if you're pausing before that thought in this moment, just say, yes, Jesus, I trust you. Come into my life and be my Lord and Saviour.